Well, good morning, Eastridge. Thank you uh, for being here with us. Uh, It's a loud mic as uh, we are uh, celebrating uh, Jesus this morning. And um, so my name's Tom. If you have been coming maybe for a month or so, you probably don't know who I am. Uh, I am the uh, senior pastor here at Eastridge, and we are just so blessed to be to be back. Um, Lindsay and I and the family took a sabbatical, like she said, starting in early or late May. And so I kind of decided just to do two little quick hitters on where we've been, what I, what I learned along the way. And then uh, this fall, we're going to be doing a series that I kind of developed while I was, I was trying not to work, but my head doesn't do that. Um, so... I'll be unpacking a lot more of this in, in the fall. But when you are into a sabbatical, you, you take those for various reasons. And the church has this, the, kind of this long-established policy of those here. And originally, you know, it was uh, going to be in 2020, and then that happened. And so when we planned this out, last week I talked primarily about why I went where I went, which was centered around this one single church in Edinburgh, Scotland. But before I got there, so I'm doing this a little bit in reverse, before I got there, I did a little stopover in in Ireland. Because there was this one period, I'm a kind of a church history guy, and there's this one period of history that has always fascinated me, um, and that is uh, in, in the history of Northern Ireland. And it is a place, uh, it's one of the most beautiful places I've ever seen. There's a couple of spots there that, um, the way I phrased it and frame it to people, I say, well, so what'd you see? And I, I tell people, you know when your, t- your smart TV turns to the screensaver setting? I saw three of those places. Okay, so it's one of the most kind of beautiful places that I've ever been. But I also wanted to go because of a fascination with the city of Belfast. And we're going to be talking about two very different periods of church history and how we can relate them uh, into our story. Uh, Before I left, I established a series called This Is My Story. And you've been hearing a lot of stories, maybe some personal, some people's, you know, witness or how they came to know who Jesus Christ was. But then also, uh, we also have a collective history together. And so before we get into kind of maybe the Belfast or the Northern Ireland that you kind of vaguely know, I wanted to begin with, this is also the home of St. Patrick, who's one of my favorite church historical figures. And St. Patrick is not St. Patrick's Day, okay? Whatever that thing has become, that's fine. That's a celebration of Ireland. It is is not him whatsoever, uh, because actually St. Patrick is is British. And so uh, he was a missionary to Ireland. He becomes the patron saint of Ireland. And why and how and all of that is a really fascinating story because when he was a kid, he was actually captured by raiders and taken over and was made a slave uh, in, in Ireland. And he was there for about six or seven years or so, working as a slave uh, for landowners, probably some form of a shepherd or watching over uh, livestock. And eventually he escaped. And he made his way home. He got his way back. This was not an easy task to do whatsoever. And he got back to England. He got into the priesthood and became, you know, established priest. And then God had a call on him, and he went up to his bishops and said, I feel like I need to go back to Ireland to spread the gospel. 
Now, I don't know if I would um, be signing up for returning to the place that enslaved me. You know, I, I, I don't know if I would say, hey, you know, I really miss uh, my, my six solid years of slavery. And, um, but he had a heart for the people that, that took him. And he said, you know what? They need Jesus. Now, the bishops at this point, uh, Ireland was the end of the earth. They were seen as godless pagans, uh, not worth sending some, one of their best talents to go over to, to Ireland to spread the gospel. So they said, no, you're, you're not going to go. You're going to stay here. You're going to be safe. You're not going to go. So there's, there's this conflict that was beginning. And eventually, St. Patrick went, this is where the kingdom of God is heading, and I'm going to go. And he went, much to the consternation of this council, and he established a foothold and a stronghold of churches here. The church that's behind me is called Downpatrick Cathedral, which is about 20 minutes south of Belfast. And this is not the original church. The original church, the way that this, you would establish an entirely new religion is you would go and you would find a shed. And eventually the shed would, would be built. You'd have a few worshipers in there, and then somebody would come and knock it down. And then you would build a bigger, bigger church, and somebody would come and knock it down. This is uh, where he is supposedly buried. There are three churches that claim, claim this. This probably has the strongest claim to it. Uh, so right outside of this church is this really beautiful rock. And um, you think, that's a weird way to honor St. Patrick. Well, there used to be a prettier thing there, but it kept getting stolen. And so, um, and his bones kept getting dug up and taken to other places as, as idols. So they said, you know what will fix this? A giant rock. And so they just put the giant rock in there, put an inscription on it, and that rock hasn't gotten stolen. And that's how we have, you know, this memory of him. There should be a little video of the inside of the church. It's very simple, very plain, not a lot, um, not a lot happening with it. And it had it reminded me of the Old North Church in Boston, if you've ever been there. It is a, a church of booths where the wealthy would pay. To, listen to this. So the wealthy would pay to be close to the preacher. Um, and so, thank you, thank you, Scott. Um, so the, the, the higher rent booths had uh, little coal-burning coal fireplaces in it, and you could decorate it however you want. And, you know, where people complain that you might have a seat or a pew that's yours, they would, like, establish, like, pictures of their families. They would have, this was the, the Jenkins booth, right? And that's where they would be. And so that's another story. But there it is. And out of this conflict and out of this, uh, this decision for St. Patrick just to say, you know what, I'm going, you can't stop me, he establishes Christianity in, in Ireland. And at that point, that's Catholicism. So because of him, there are the, the Irish nation is largely Catholic, except for one little section in Northern Ireland, and that's largely Protestant. And that's because the English took, came up, took that little section, lots of fighting, lots of bickering, and eventually it all comes to a head in the 1960s. What is going on during this time, and you can, you can uh, stop it there, what's going on during this time is there's a lot of Catholic and Protestant fighting, but there's also the Protestants in Belfast primarily, uh, are, they hold most of the jobs, they hold more votes, 
And so there was no way for the Catholics to really even move up um, into government. Or um, then eventually they would change rules. Like it used to be everybody got a vote. And then the Catholics were having more babies than the Protestants. So eventually they said only the adults, or I'm sorry, only the taxpayers get a vote. So they're just changing stuff. And in the late 60s, just like here, 1968, that all came to a head. So you have Catholics and Protestants, and they eventually start bombing each other. They start blowing each other up. It's an ugly scene. You have the Loyalists on one side. You have the Irish Republican Army on the other. The Irish Republicans are the Catholics. The Loyalists are the Protestants. And very quickly, nationalism and your faith gets intertwined, and now we have a major, major church conflict and national conflict. It gets weird really quick. So much so that by the late 90s, they finally came to a ceasefire, and it's called the Good Friday Agreement. If you grew up in that time, you might be aware of it. But today, it's an awesome city. I didn't expect to fall in love with much as Belfast as I did, because imagine living your entire life under, I wonder if things are going to blow up today. And now you're out of it, and you're on the other side, and you, just go, you can go out to dinner. You're very much more appreciative. You love having get-togethers. The, the people were the most friendly people I had met. But there is a section of town that still holds some of those mementos and still is actively engaged in this conflict. So they paint memorials of uh, the, the, some of their heroes. So this is Bobby Sands. Bobby Sands was a hunger striker. He died in prison because he, was, he wanted to be seen as a political prisoner, not just as a criminal. And then there's also uh, the loyalists will have this guy um, uh, murdered 13 people. And so they honor him by putting up a big mural on the side of somebody's house. Somebody lives in that house. And they can't change it because that's a Section 8 house. There's still a 50-foot high wall uh, that separates the Catholic and the Protestant neighborhood. Still there. They can't take it down. They want to. But people live very close to the other side of the wall. And so on the back end of one of their houses, uh, I, I stuck a picture. I don't know if you're allowed to. Um, I took a picture of somebody's patio. And on their patio, because every now and again a Molotov cocktail will get chucked over from one side to the other, um, they put up a nice roof and they can sit and have, have dinner outside. And not, imagine that your backyard is a 50-foot high peace wall. So it's very much there. The people are amazing. This is the site, this is called Bombay Street. If you've seen the movie Belfast that came out recently, this is where that all began. This is the inscriptions of people that, that died at this location. Children, young ones, old ones. People that just got stuck in the conflict. One of the more fascinating places that I did visit, and this is why I went, because sometimes you can think of things as so distant. This is called the Crumlin Road Jail, and this is where they would take the people that they would, that the, the, whatever side you were on, um, they would take them to go to prison. And so they would go under the tunnel. This prison cell was occupied until the 90s. So this isn't some distant, far off, this is where people sat in internment, I have another picture. Um, this is the child cell. Because they were teaching their children to hate the other. And you think of that and you just go, how could people do this? How could we t- treat and teach people to have so many others? And I bet you most of us have an other. 
Maybe it doesn't go to this level, but you may have an other, a group or a people that you think are outside of the, of the will of God or outside, you know, there's these people, these just godless whatever. And I wanted, it's just so interesting to me to have St. Patrick brings the gospel and then the gospel eventually becomes meshed with this political stuff and the nation and all this and it just got so muddy, so ugly, so quickly. And now, imagine, you grew up in that and you know people that died in that conflict and you think, those Christians did that. Now, Christianity is dying there. Because of the witness that they gave to the people that was all around them of, we don't love each other. We don't give grace to each other. I got there, got into my apartment. It was on a Friday. On Saturday, I went, I should probably go to church tomorrow. Googled church near me. That's as much research as I put into this. Went into the church, and I sat in the back. No, I didn't sit in the back. I sat in the middle. And I was admittedly judging it because nobody greeted me. Okay, I can't go to church normally. So I'm sitting there and just kind of looking around like nobody greeted me. Where is everybody? This is, I would do this better. I would do that better. And the, the guy gets up to preach, and he says, well, thank you all for being here, because as you know from our, from our meeting last Tuesday, this is our last service. So I got to go to a church funeral and immediately felt com- totally convicted that I was judging this congregation because they were, they were in the act of closing. It is incredible how many different churches are just empty because the witness that we are presenting is not a witness of grace and hospitality but it's a witness the witness there was a great was a was a violence here it might just be indifference or irrelevance but church conflict exists whether or not we we know what to do with it today or even back then because the early church had major conflicts as well so we were born kind of into, you know, humans have disagreements. Christians are humans. We will disagree with each other, and that's okay. What impacts us, though, is how that gets in the way of the gospel. And if we allow our disagreements to get in the way of us preaching and teaching the gospel, then that's when we have a problem. The early church, did you know that there was a beef in the early church? There was a major grudge in the early church in the book of Acts. And I could have picked a lot of different spots, but this is kind of a funny story. But before I get there, this has nothing to do with anything. Um, in Philippians, there's this remarkable story. I want to know the back end. This is one of my, when I get to heaven, I get to ask Jesus questions. Paul's wrapping up his letter to the church in Philippi. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. And by the way, I plead with Iodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. There's a, these, these two women are fighting. He says, Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my co workers whose names are in the book of life. Can you imagine for all of eternity your petty church disagreement is now in the Bible? 
He never mentions him again. All they're known for is, can you guys just stop? I love, so when I get to heaven, I want to meet them. I want to know what the argument was about and how big a deal it was to Paul to write it in this letter. But Paul also had an had a argument with somebody else. He and John Mark had a disagreement. And they were advancing the gospel into this new area in Cyprus, and they were encountering all kinds of spiritual attack. And it got weird. It got very different. It, maybe this is one they signed up for. So in Acts 13, it says this. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil. This is Elymas he's encountering. And an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed, for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. Most people stop there. The next verse, it says... From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga and Pamphylia, where John left them, John Mark, to return to Jerusalem. That seems innocuous. Later on, in Acts 15, we see what Paul really thinks. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back. Let's go back to visit the believers in the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul didn't think it was wise because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement, they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left. Commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord, he went through Syria and Cilicia, it's strengthening the churches. So there, Paul thought John Mark abandoned them. He said, and they said, hey, let's go back and see how everybody's doing. And Paul said, not John Mark. You remember what he did? You remember when we needed him the most? Where was he? He was hanging out back in Jerusalem. He abandoned us. And Paul held that for quite some time. Now, one of the last letters that Paul ever wrote is in, it's called 2 Timothy. And he's commissioning, you can kind of read into, and he's saying, I'm nearing the end. And he's basically commissioning Timothy to take on the next part of the gospel. But he's got a little bit of cleanup to do. And I'm actually going to start this one in verse 6, Laura. It says, I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly, Timothy. For Demas, because he loved the world, has deserted me. He's gone to Thessalonica, Crescens has gone to Galatia, and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. At the end, he's perhaps noticing. He was just, John Mark didn't abandon Jesus. He left Paul. Paul took that personally, held the grudge, and said he became an other. 
And at the end, he noticed, you know what, John Mark did continue on with Barnabas and did some pretty incredible things. Barnabas is a very important figure in church history. Uh, some say maybe even as, as important as Paul. Barnabas didn't write as many letters. So we don't have as much text or foundational scripture to go off of. But one went west, one went east, and the gospel somehow ends up in Asia. But we don't really have a lot of that content because of not a lot of letter writing was happening. But at the end, Paul says... Bring Mark. We all can have major church disagreements. We can have conflict. We, can, there, we, we don't, especially here at Eastridge, I don't expect, I know for a fact that people disagree with me theologically and that's okay. I'm not trying to teach you to agree with me. I'm trying to teach you to get you as close to Jesus Christ as possible. This isn't, I want disciples of Tom. I want disciples of Jesus. And what is important is that all of us together, misfits, the no perfect peoples that are in this room, leave here today closer to Christ than you came in. And that's okay if there are disagreements. There's theological differences on our staff, and that's fine. I actually appreciate the beauty of that. Because we can somehow function together for the cause of the kingdom, for the cause of Jesus. It's not about where, if you check this box, this box, and this box. And that's where the whole Belfast Troubles thing became a major issue. Because what has happened is we've, they, they eventually identified their faith with a nation and with a politic and it got ugly. And Jesus got lost along the way. There's no Jesus in that Molotov cocktail, which has active burn marks, by the way. I think I have a picture um, of, of that, maybe. They're, the gates that separate those neighborhoods still close at night because of just the tension that's in the air, especially as you get closer and closer to July 12th, which is basically their 4th of July. So what are we doing? How do we respond to that today? And as I think, if we're honest with ourselves, we might have a lot of those people in our lives. Or maybe, maybe it's not somebody you know. It's harder to do that to somebody you know. But maybe you have like a those Catholics, those liberals, those conservatives, when you start thosing, well, let me rephrase that, othering people, Jesus gets left out of a lot of that thought process. Because to them, they are very much the same children of God as you are. He loves them just as much as he loves you, whether or not you want to admit that or not. He loves those who are a long way off, and he loves those who, who are rightfully close, but then when we start to say those, it can get ugly really fast. Disagreement is okay, but when it eventually becomes hindering the gospel, that can't be a part of our story. We can't allow our disagreements to get in the way of what Jesus wants to do in this world.
We can't allow our petty arguments or the church should be doing this or you tearing down different pieces of the church and all of those little petty things that we think we're so right on. We are picking apart the body of Christ. And I don't think he's for that. Christians are humans. Humans disagree, but we should not work to destroy each other. We are a people of grace and of mercy and of repentance. And I think far too often we, are, we believe our own publicity and we write our own press that we are right and they are wrong. What if you're wrong? I know we never consider that. I'm right a lot. Yep. (laughs) And if only the people in power would just agree with me, then we would set this world right, right? We all think that. We can't all be right. So we need to build our lives and our foundation, not upon ourselves, but on the word of God and who Jesus Christ is proclaimed within it. Because that is right. And once we admit that, then we see a lot of the foolish stuff that we get into becomes this giant mirror that comes out of this gospel because we need to get out of the way. So, as the team comes up, we're going to celebrate um, communion this morning. And I wanted to do that, and kind of that's why I did this a little bit of reverse because I actually was in Ireland first. Because I wanted this one to be about community and about coming together. Um, What's fascinating about Eastridge, what makes it hard to preach to, actually, is I know politically, theologically, there's not a lot of agreement in the room. I can't just start teaching, you know, here's what you need to, this specific thing. I need to get you as close to Jesus as, as, as I possibly can, not to me. And so I wanted this to be about community because I think there's some things when we gather around the table, there's a commonality in us saying to Jesus, I love you, I repent, forgive me, and we're all in this together. So we here at Eastridge celebrate, uh, it's called Open Communion. And so if this is your first Sunday, if this is your 30th year, you're welcome to join us at this table as long as you just believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I'm going to pray for you. And so what we're going to do is we're going to have a service come up and you can come up and grab the elements and then go back to your seats and we'll take it together as a family. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we gather here this morning, we pray for reconciliation. Maybe it's in our families, maybe it's in our, in our hearts. Maybe we've othered a lot of people. Or maybe there's just that one person that we have written off. Lord, I thank you that you have not written us off. May we return that to those whom you love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.